This evening I have prepared a message from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You can listen now as I read from the English Standard Version, the ESV. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help as we open it together. As has already been prayed, oh God, we do ask for the ministry of your spirit among us. Help me in the preaching and help us all, including myself, in the hearing that it might profit us spiritually. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, many will say, and I'm sure you've heard it before, God will not give you more than you can handle. But according to the text that we just read, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses eight and nine, I'd have to answer, oh yes, he will. Now we should address head on the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I know some of you will have that text from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 in your mind and struggle every time that you hear me say tonight that God will give you more than you can handle. But that passage in 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about temptation. And tonight I'm not talking about temptation, I'm talking about affliction. That passage in 1 Corinthians 10 teaches that God will never put you in a position where your only option is to sin. But the passage that we're looking at tonight, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, teaches that God will put you in a position of great affliction, where you are in over your head and unable to sustain or rescue yourself, and your only option is to rely on Him. God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He won't give you more temptation than you can handle. But God will give you more affliction than you can handle. That's what I mean tonight when I say that God will give you more than you can handle. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 doesn't contradict that. So it stands what I said at the beginning. Some say God won't give you more than you can handle. But according to our text this evening, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Oh yes, oh yes, he will. Let me explain and expand. That's exactly what he did to Paul. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul tells us that he and his companions were utterly burdened, utterly burdened beyond their strength or pressed out of measure above strength, for those of you using the King James Version. That's the very definition, isn't it, 
of being given more than you can handle. Burdened beyond your strength. Utterly burdened beyond your strength. Some people say God will not give you more than you can handle. But according to our text, oh yes, he will. Exploring this truth and its applications is the aim of my message tonight. But let's back up. Having introduced it, pretend that you don't know that yet. Pretend that you don't know my aim. Pretend that you don't know that's what I'm driving at. And let's start by examining together Paul's affliction that he refers to in verse 8. It's most likely that Paul is here in 2 Corinthians 1.8 referring to the riot in Ephesus, which is described in Acts 19. Acts 19 and verse 22 locates Ephesus in Asia, and there's actually no biblical data for any alternative ministry in Asia. So it's most natural to assume that Paul is probably referring to the riot in Ephesus when he speaks about being burdened beyond his strength and the affliction that he experienced in Asia. It actually makes no material difference, however, to our purposes this evening, whether or not that incident specifically is what Paul is referring to. Since as one commentator puts it, Paul is here referring to the intensity of his affliction rather than the fact of his affliction. So we could actually just take our pick of Paul's afflictions. It doesn't really matter exactly which one he's referring to here. It could hypothetically be any of the things that we know Paul experienced at one time or another, which are listed in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following. And no matter which of those it was, the theology of 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 would be unaffected. So it could have been imprisonments that Paul was referring to, or countless beatings, or being near death often, or receiving 40 lashes minus one on several occasions being beaten with rods three times, being stoned, being shipwrecked three times, being adrift at sea a night and day, danger from robbers, danger from both Jews and Gentiles, danger from false brothers, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, cold, and exposure. Take your pick of any of these. We know that Paul experienced those things at one time or another because he lists them in 2 Corinthians 11. It doesn't matter really which of those he's referring to in 2 Corinthians 1. The point is that whatever experience, whatever it was that he experienced in Asia, the point is that it was so intense that it burdened him beyond his strength and he despaired of life itself. Now, Paul was a missionary, a career missionary. He made multiple missions trips. Let us imagine together that a missionary was sent out from one of our churches. And during the course of his missions trip, doesn't matter however long or short it may have been, during the course of it, he experienced imprisonments, countless beatings, being near death often, receiving 40 lashes minus one on several occasions being beaten with rods three times, stoned, shipwrecked three times, adrift at sea night and day, experienced danger from robbers, danger from both Jews and Gentiles, danger from false brothers, 
sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, cold, exposure. And when he returned, this missionary sent out from one of our churches, he reported these things to us. And he said, I was utterly burdened beyond my strength, and I despaired of life itself. Wouldn't many of us be tempted to say, what is, what is the phrase that is so often used? That was a trip from hell. Isn't that the way that we often think about Christian ministry and more generally all the suffering or affliction in our lives? It was a week from hell, we say, or it was a month from hell. Or we say, Satan is really having a field day with me or with so-and-so when we're suffering or when someone else is suffering. So goes our thinking when we're in the midst of affliction. Surely God is not causing this affliction, we think. And so it must be Satan's doing. But this passage, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, confronts that assumption. In this case, it was God, ultimately, behind all of the affliction that Paul and his companions experienced in Asia, which burdened them beyond their strength and caused them to despair of life itself. Sure, evil men acted, and doubtless Satan was afoot. But in it all, and over it all, was God. Look at verse 9. We see the language of intention or purpose why did paul's afflictions occur look at it to or in order to that was the sense of it to or in order to make us rely not on ourselves but on god so someone planned or purposed and then acted to afflict Paul and his companions in order that they would rely on God. That's what this passage is telling us. Someone planned it because it was in order to. It wasn't just random. And it could it have been Paul then that planned that he would be afflicted beyond his strength so that he would despair of life itself and then turn to God? No, I, I think it's obvious that Paul is not the orchestrator of the affliction described here. He is not who is intended by the implication of purpose. And would Satan plan to do something in order to make Paul rely not on himself, but on God? Would that ever be Satan's intention? No. So the implication is clear then by process of elimination. God ordained the affliction that Paul and his companions experienced in verse 8 in order to accomplish his purpose, namely what is stated in verse 9, to make Paul and his companions rely not on themselves but on God. God planned the affliction in order to make Paul and his companions rely not on themselves but on God therefore 
Paul's missions trip to Asia was not a trip from hell, but from heaven. Could it be likewise that the overwhelming suffering in your life, could it be that the overwhelming circumstances that you feel will sink you are not from hell, but are from heaven? It couldn't be, you object. God will not give me more than I can handle. According to this passage, at least at times, oh yes, he will. Let's consider now, since that is the case, that at least at times, God may cause and purpose affliction for his people. Let's consider why God may cause affliction. We can see clearly from our text the fact that God was sovereignly behind Paul's affliction, employing Satan's schemes and the actions of sinful men to achieve his purposes. And we can infer then that at times he might be behind our affliction also. What might be, what might the purposes of God be then in our affliction? I don't propose to provide an exhaustive answer tonight, but I just want to examine one possible purpose in some detail. The purpose stated here. God caused Paul's affliction, though he used means. God intended Paul's afflictions in order to make Paul rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. The goal of Paul's afflictions was to elicit a deeper reliance on God. Some say God won't give you more than you can handle. Oh yes, he will in order to cause you to rely not on yourself, but more fully on him. This is at least one of God's purposes in the affliction that he sovereignly ordains for us, that we would Learn to rely more fully on God. Now, what is the significance of the phrase at the end of verse 9? That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God can raise the dead, then he can surely either rescue or sustain the living too. Therefore, we can trust him and rely on him both in life and in death. Think of it like this. If this affliction that I'm in kills me, then God will raise me, resurrect me from the dead at the end of all things. If God is able to, even to resurrect me, then surely he is well able to rescue me from this affliction, if that be his will. If God is able even to resurrect me, then surely he is well able to sustain me, no matter how long this affliction lasts, if that be his will. See, if God is the God who raises the dead, then we may entrust ourselves to him, not only in death, but also in life. 
in each and every circumstance of life, in each and every affliction of life. Who is more qualified to rely on in the midst of the afflictions of life than God who raises the dead? Now at this point, someone might object, but God won't raise the dead. According to our passage tonight, oh yes, he will. Our passage tonight and in fact, many other scriptures teach that. Acts, 30, Acts 2.31, for example, says, Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And the scriptures speak of the resurrected Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for dying. And as the first piece of fruit born by a tree in the right season is the harbinger of more fruit to come. So the resurrection of Christ is the harbinger of more resurrections to come. But each in his own order, the scripture says, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. At this point, we come naturally to the most pressing application that I will make today. Do you belong to Christ? If not, you may. Even tonight, trust in him to save you from the penalty and the power of your sin. Repent. Turn around from the sinful path you're walking not guided by God's law and not aimed at God's glory. Repent and believe that Jesus' righteousness is all the righteousness you need and that Jesus' death on the cross is all the atonement that you need, all the propitiation that you need to turn away from you the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. Repent and believe, and even tonight, even tonight, you may come to belong to Christ and take the hope of this resurrection that I just described as your own, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to him. So let's summarize so far before we move on. We know from this text, 2 Corinthians 1 8 and 9 that God ordained, purposed, meant, intended, and in some sense caused the affliction that Paul and his companions experienced in Asia in order to make them rely not on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. And if God did that, in this case with Paul, it stands to reason that at times he does the same with other Christians, such as you and I. Sometimes, listen here, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes God's very purpose is to utterly burden you beyond your strength, to totally overwhelm you with affliction, so that, in order that, you would learn not to rely on yourself, 
but on God who raises the dead. This is the theology of this passage. Sometimes, but not, not all times, but sometimes. That's what God's doing in your suffering. Sometimes he has set out to overwhelm you as he set out in this case to overwhelm Paul and his companions in order to make you rely more fully on him. That's the theology of this passage. For the remainder of our time this evening, let us consider the application of the theology of this passage. As I mentioned a moment ago, if you do not yet belong to Christ, the first order of business is to repent and believe. What follows has no relevance to you until you belong to Christ. For I'm dealing with the matter of God's purposes in ordaining affliction for those who are His. With that in mind, let's move to the application for believers, which is to rely on God. Rely on God. Let's explore what that means. First, it means don't rely on yourself. That's explicit. God burdened Paul beyond his strength to make him rely not on himself. So when you are utterly burdened beyond your strength, the response that God is seeking to elicit from you is not simply to try harder or do better or, as they say, to lift yourself up by your own shoelaces. Now, there is a balance to be struck because God does want us to try hard and do well. And you do read things in the New Testament like lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and act like men, be strong. So God does not refrain from exhorting us to effort and fortitude and perseverance as if these things were somehow inconsistent with relying on God. This passage is not teaching us that we should just be utterly passive and just wait for God to zap us with a lightning bolt of sanctification or something like that. Yet there is still this intention in God to make Paul not rely on himself. What is in view is the sort of self-reliance championed by many in our day which uses words and phrases like this, the triumph of the human spirit. Believe in yourself. Dig deeper. You can do anything you put your mind to. Or David Goggins' famous, stay hard. Many people think or at least act like the human being is a bottomless well of untapped resources and potential. If God had, has laid this affliction upon me, the reasoning goes, then God must believe in me that I can access the resources and potential within myself, which I will need to get through this. After all, the thinking goes, God will not give me more than I can handle. It is this kind of relying on yourself that God does not want. God is not just forever exhorting you to look within yourself and draw from some well 
of resources and potential within yourself. God is not forever exhorting you to more effort and more diligence and more fortitude and more perseverance as if you have everything you need and you just need to tap into it. Sometimes God is taking you intentionally into the deep end, so to speak, and drowning you, so to speak, utterly burdening you beyond your strength so that you tap into whatever well of resources and potential you have within yourself and you exhaust it and you find that you're still in the midst of affliction and you haven't sustained yourself or rescued yourself at all. Sometimes God's very purpose is to utterly burden you beyond your strength so that you see just how finite and weak and helpless you are so that you see that you cannot always rescue or sustain yourself so that you cry out to him with a childlike faith. I can't do it, Father. Help me. So that the childlike song comes forth from your heart. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. We are to rely not on ourselves, but on God. And when we are ready to stop relying on ourselves and to start relying on God, what do we rely on God for? Let's circle back around to something I said earlier. The logic of this passage is, if affliction kills me, God will raise me from the dead at the end of all things. If God is able to resurrect me, Surely he is well able to rescue me from the affliction, if that be his will. If God is able to resurrect me, surely he is able to sustain me in the midst of this suffering, however long it lasts, if that be his will. So there are three possibilities of how a situation of affliction could turn out for a Christian. Resurrection, rescue, or sustenance. Let's look at each of these three at some greater length. The first possibility is that the affliction doesn't end well for you in an earthly sense and you die. Of course, contrary to prosperity gospel preachers, this happens all the time to Christians. Christians die from injuries sustained in car accidents. Christians die from cancer and other diseases. Christians die from malnutrition. Christians die from persecution. Consider the Apostle James. Acts 12 tells us that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Sometimes our affliction ends in death. So we're not necessarily to rely on God for rescue in the here and now. Sometimes we're relying on God for a resurrection. But sometimes God does give a rescue in the here and now. Certainly he's able to, if that is his will. If it is that he is able even to resurrect us, then surely he can rescue us from whatever it is that would kill us in the first place. And in fact, rescue is what God did for Peter in the same instance of persecution in which James was killed. Acts 12 
goes on to say that when Herod saw the killing of James, that the killing of James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now listen to what happened as I read from Acts 12, 6 to 11. Now when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. In this case, God rescued Peter. So when we rely on God in the midst of affliction, God may allow us to die. But in that case, he will resurrect us. Alternatively, God may rescue us when we rely on him. And there's one more possibility. God may sustain us in affliction. Consider God's sustenance of the early church in persecution. In instances when he neither rescued them from it, nor allowed them to die from it. For example, in Acts 5, we read that the Jewish council called in the apostles, beat them, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. What happened then? The apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. God sustained them in the midst of affliction. And then there is the well-known instance of Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns at midnight in a Roman jail. God sustained them. So when we rely on God in the midst of affliction, we may die. But if so, God will resurrect us. Or we may be rescued. Or midnight will find us praying and singing. Blessed be your name. In a land that is plentiful, where streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows, like sea billows, roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. 
on Christ the solid rock I stand. You may be utterly burdened beyond your strength by God's very design, intention, purpose to bring you to a childlike place where you are prepared to say, not my will, but thine, Father. I am weak, but you are strong and good and wise. Whatever you have sovereignly purposed to do, I trust you and I rely on you. If you slay me, then like Job, yet will I praise you. If you rescue me, then like Hezekiah, I will tell the next generation of your faithfulness. And if you choose simply to sustain me, then like the psalmist, every night I may flood my bed with tears. But like the psalmist, I will keep trusting you and keep relying on you and keep holding on to your promises. And like Paul and Silas, I will sing in the dark of the night. You see the comfort that it is to have on our side in the midst of affliction, in the midst of suffering, the God who raises the dead, beckoning us to rely on him. We Christians may be burdened beyond our own strength, but we'll never be burdened beyond the strength of our God who raises the dead. So in a sense, we can't lose when we rely on God. If affliction kills us, God will resurrect us. And if it doesn't kill us, he will either rescue us or sustain us. So the application is rely on God. I hope that's clear by now. Rely on God. That's the what. Let's talk now about the how. And I'd like to open our exploration of how to rely on God with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, Christians are not just men who have taken up a certain theory and are trying to practice it. It is God doing something in them and through them. And in a similar vein, Lloyd-Jones says, God has entered into you. God is working in you. You are the people in whom God has started to work. Brothers and sisters, the power of God is not just an abstract idea. It's not just a mere doctrine. It is an operative reality at work in every believer. As Lloyd-Jones said, Christian, you are actually presently in and being molded by the sovereign hands of God who raises the dead. There's a story of a tightrope walker who stretched a line above Niagara Falls and walked back and forth. Then he added a wheelbarrow and walked back and forth. Of course, the crowd cheered and was uniformly affirming when he asked if they thought he could do it again with someone in the wheelbarrow. But then when he asked for volunteers, no one came forward. You see, there is a difference between merely thinking it is safe to be in the wheelbarrow 
and actually getting in the wheelbarrow. So it is with relying on God. There's a difference between merely thinking that God's power can resurrect someone or rescue someone or sustain someone in principle and actually entrusting yourself to God to resurrect you or to rescue you or to sustain you. So you need to get in the wheelbarrow, so to speak. This looks like A, using first-person pronouns, and B, cultivating a rich devotional life. Let me expand on those two things. Many times people feel like God's promises are true for others but are not applicable to themselves. So they will readily say things like, God will resurrect her, but they struggle to say or to feel, God will resurrect me. Or they will readily say, Paul could do all things through Christ who strengthened him, but they will struggle to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Relying on God means in the first place realizing and acknowledging that the power of God is not just a doctrine but a reality and that it is not just for others but is for you too. And so it looks like using first-person pronouns. God is my help. I am looking to God for strength. God, help me as you have helped the saints through the ages or even on the deathbed into thy hands I commit my spirit so use first person pronouns and then further relying on God looks like cultivating a rich devotional life Pouring over the scriptures, not as an attorney does with a deceased person's will, merely to know the sense, but as John Newton said, as an heir with a personal claim and interest. What promises may I claim to sustain me in the midst of my utterly overwhelming affliction? What assurances of God may I find to comfort my soul in this difficult time? How is God guiding and helping me by his word as I pass through these circumstances? And of course, prayer. The other aspect of our devotional life. There are different types of prayer, among them crying out to God, How long, O Lord? Deliver me. Be to me a refuge today, and so forth. The Psalms will be a great help to you in this respect, providing a rubric for your prayers. And the Psalms also help us to see how to hold on to God's promises, even while grieving and lamenting. Phrases like, nevertheless, I know, are littered throughout the Psalms. The psalmist begins so many Psalms by saying, oh Lord, I'm burdened, I'm overwhelmed, I'm struggling in this way or in that way. And then there's this phrase like, nevertheless, I know, 
or yet or something like that. Again, the Psalms will be of great help to you in learning how to hold on to God's promises even while grieving and lamenting. And then adoration, prayers of praise. God is no less worthy of our praise when we're suffering than when we are not. So we ought to pray like Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So use first person pronouns. Get in the wheelbarrow and cultivate a rich devotional life. Pour over the scriptures as an heir. What does the scriptures, how do the scriptures speak to me? What is my interest in these things? And then cry out to God in prayer. Hold on to God's promises in prayer, even while you grieve and lament, and continue to praise him. Use first-person pronouns and cultivate a rich devotional life. In summary, God sometimes sovereignly purposes to utterly burden us beyond our strength so that we will rely not on ourselves, but on him. And relying on God, we cannot really lose. We'll either be sustained, rescued, or resurrected. Therefore, the Christian need not fear affliction, for we are ultimately safe in the hands of God who raises the dead. In fact, many have come to appreciate affliction for the effect it has on our spiritual life. Spurgeon, for example, said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. So let us not, when utterly burdened beyond our strength, assume that it is the work of hell against us, but rather let us embrace whatever our Father sovereignly unfolds for us and to us in his providence. Let us embrace it as for our ultimate good. And whenever that is affliction, would we let it have its intended effect in our lives by relying more on God in the midst of it, by using first-person pronouns and cultivating a rich devotional life? When God gives you more than you can handle, it's never more than he can handle. So rely on God. He will either sustain you or rescue you or resurrect you.